Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Warren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sorry. Thanks for joining us today. We are on episode 24. This is actually the last lesson in our series of What Does the Bible Say? So, Sadly, you know, all good things must come to an end. This is the end of, uh, of that chapter of our podcast. Uh, but as I mentioned last time, we, we do have other things in store and planned uh, for the future of Under the Oaks. We've got many more, more episodes to come. So this episode or this lesson, so to speak, uh, we're going to do something that we've done a few times throughout our course and that is we're going to have a little bit of a history lesson. Before we've, we've focused on Bible history, we've read some of the narrative sections of the Old Testament, New Testament, to kind of get a framework or, or a, a frame of reference for us to understand where these things fit into place. But today we're going to talk a little bit about church history. And that's a topic that I think a lot of people don't know a lot about. And and I understand why, really. I mean, it's just not something that we think a lot about. And to be fair, this is a topic that we could spend probably 24 lessons on in and of itself. So by no means is this going to be an exhaustive type of lesson either. Uh, again, we're having sort of a Reader's Digest condensed version of church history from the time of the Apostles up through the Reformation and into the present day. So there's no way we can possibly do it justice or cover all of the major stories or impactful events that occurred during that time. But I think it is good for us to sort of see some of the broad strokes or some of the broad uh, topics or challenges or triumphs that the church has endured or faced throughout the centuries. As the Bible says, there's nothing new under the sun. False teachings, certain events, they seem to be cyclical. They come back over and over and over in, in the theme of church history. And I think uh, for a lot of Christians out there, they're somewhat familiar with uh, maybe some church history from the time of the Reformation. Maybe they're familiar with a little bit of American church history, whatever it might be. But there's sort of this disconnect. Uh, you know, how is what we believe today connected with what the early church believed? Or how does it compare? And all of those kind of things. For a lot of people, when it comes to their understanding of church history, uh, they can only go back as far as 100 years or 200 years, maybe to the time of the Reformation. But they have no idea what the early church fathers might have said or did nor do they much care. And of course, this is a dangerous place for us to be. Obviously, we don't raise tradition or even church history to the point of the authority of the scriptures. Everything that we believe, teach, and confess is drawn from the scriptures, but an ignorance of church history can certainly be dangerous to us as well. You know, for instance, if you have a teaching that only has a history of 100 years or 150 years, at some point, that should be a problem to you. You should say, well, why doesn't it go back further? Or if you can only tr trace your theological point of view back to the time of the Reformation, that is also a problem. Uh, if you really believe that the church has always existed, that the truth has always existed, then it's not something that was invented by your guy in the 1500s or your guy in the 1800s or whatever it might be. It's something that we should be able to see and trace back to the earliest centuries of the church. Now, that being said, uh, we certainly don't look at the church fathers or church history as infallible. Uh, we know that already with the time of the apostles, there was false teachings 
that were presenting challenges to congregations and to the church. We see that in the letters of St. Paul and the letters of the New Testament. So it's not like false teachers or false teachings suddenly crept up later on in church history. They're there from day one, and they go back into the Old Testament for that matter. So uh, just to, to make you aware of all of those types of factors as we undertake this sort of, again, Reader's Digest condensed version of church history, nevertheless, which I do think is beneficial. So we're going to take a look at a brief history of the Christian church from about the time of the death of the apostles up to the present times. As we think about the beginnings of the New Testament church after the time of the death of the apostles, probably roughly coming close to 100 AD, we know St. John lived to be the longest. He died a natural death, the only one of the apostles to die a natural death. The rest were, uh, died as martyrs. So the church did not end with the death of the apostles. However, faithful pastors, some of them disciples of the apostles, uh, many of which you can actually read uh, some of their writings. By the way, you, you, know, you can find these things. Uh, they continue to do the work that was already begun with the apostles. So missionaries carried the gospel to new places, such as Arabia or Egypt, North Africa, Southern France, and the region along the Danube. Now, during this time, the church also experiences the first organized persecutions, it's not that there weren't persecutions earlier than this, but here we, we begin to see a much more organized persecution of the church, uh, beginning with the torture and slaughter of Roman Christians by Nero in 64 AD. There were 10 official persecutions over the next 250 years. The first 300 years of Christianity are, are pretty brutal. Christians were beheaded, they were crucified, they were thrown before wild beasts or coated with pitch, and burned as living torches. However, these persecutions did not stop the gospel. The courage and even the joy, which was really amazing even to outsiders as they watched these Christians go to their martyrdom, even with joy. Uh, the Christians suffered and died for their Savior. Well, all of that made a deep impression upon other people, those outside the church, the unconverted. In fact, one of the early Church Fathers wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, it's kind of the irony of all ironies. The more that the secular world tried to squash the church and stop it, the more the opposite happened. It's almost like God was in control. Ah, he was. Yeah. Imagine that. But it was really a remarkable thing. And, you know, uh, in many ways, a scary time, uh, a horrendous time to be a Christian. And nevertheless... Uh, these Christians, in spite of all that, went to their deaths, their martyrdom, with joy and often singing praises to God. Of course, this, this left a, a mark on the world around it. I mean, people, there's something to that. There's something to that Christian faith. Those people even go to their deaths happy and joyous. What is it about that Christian faith? What is it about that Christian religion? Finally, in 313 AD, uh, the emperor Constantine, he embraced the Christian faith, and not long after, Christianity becomes the religion of the Roman Empire, becomes sort of legalized. It becomes uh, okay, acceptable for you to be a Christian outwardly. And in many ways, you say, this is wonderful, right? I mean, this is great. Now it's, you have freedom to 
to worship as a Christian. It's no longer this intense persecution, which is true. On the other hand, it's around this time that Christianity begins to get mixed up with politics a little bit. And this is, in many ways, always going to be problematic. It's going to be a problem that plagues Christianity uh, here on out. And it will for time to come. I mean, that's just the the reality of it. And we can talk more about why that would be, but uh, we're going to continue by looking at what happened then. So having been unsuccessful in destroying Christianity by persecutions from the outside, the devil next raises false teachers from inside the church. And again, this is not necessarily something new. As I said, when we look at the writings of the New Testament, there was persecutions from within the congregations already. I mean, we think about St. Paul's letter to the Galatians with the Judaizers and so on. So this is not a new phenomena, but uh, again, the devil doubles down his efforts to produce false teachers within the church. So there's a man named Arius who denies the deity of Christ by teaching that the Son of God is not eternal and equal with the Father. He would say there once was a time when he was not. In other words, he was just a created being, but that he is the first and perfect creature. Now, the Council of Nicaea, held in 325 AD, Well, they reject this heresy and they adopt a statement which denounces it or articulates the biblical faith. We call this statement the Nicene Creed. It's a statement of belief, which declares that Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. All of those phrases were carefully articulated to defend the biblical Christian faith against the false teachings of Arius and his followers. Now, the foremost defender of the faith at this time is a man named Athanasius, after whom the Athanasian Creed is later named. And that's also a creed that we in the Lutheran Church profess on Trinity Sunday, because it's so clearly and articulately Uh, confesses the doctrine of the Trinity, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. In the 5th century, a man named Pelagius attacks the doctrine of original sin, that we are born into this world completely dead and, and corrupt in our sins and trespasses, and instead he teaches that man can convert and save himself. Now, uh, Pelagius is uh, condemned This time it's Augustine who takes the lead in the battle for the truth. And he insists that we are by nature altogether incapable of good and that we owe our salvation solely to the grace of God. It's not that he's the first person who's ever seen this or articulated this, but especially in the face of the errors of Pelagius, it becomes important that the church confess biblical truth in the face of error and in the face of lie. So this is something that we're going to see a pattern that goes on, uh, you know, throughout church history. Even when false teachers try to infiltrate the church, the church is in some ways forced into confessing what it believes, forced into confessing what the Bible teaches. And this becomes a good thing, right? Uh, It's one of those things where what's meant to destroy the church actually sharpens its confession, uh, they're, they're forced into examining the scriptures to look at these things closer than maybe they've ever looked at it before. So an issue that wasn't an issue in the early centuries now becomes an issue later on. 
and the church has to go back and examine these things again so that it can confess the truth in the face of these errors. Not that doctrine has changed. You know, doctrine doesn't develop or change. Doctrine is what it is, what God has articulated and put forth in the scriptures. However, sometimes the church needs to go back and articulate that truth more clearly in the face of these errors. Now, about this time, the gospel is brought to Ireland, then later Scotland and England and Germany and Denmark and France, and after this to Russia and Norway. Thus, in spite of bitter conflicts within, the gospel continues to be preached throughout the world. Again, we see this over and over. The more that the church uh, is counted out, the more people, uh, it's done. It continues to thrive and grow and spread. Even if it dies out in one area, it's thriving in other areas. It continues to, the proclamation of the gospel goes on. As the church grew, some ministers were uh, raised above others and called bishops or overseers. In some ways, this is sort of a natural progression. If you've got a number of congregations in a particular city, you know, you've got somebody to sort of uh, serve as a pastor over the pastors to keep an eye on the congregations to make sure that things are, are according to biblical truth and so on. They're there to help uh, with conflicts or whatever it might be. Their job was to oversee pastors in their area and to see to the training of new pastors. However, gradually, the bishops in larger cities begin to exercise more influence than other bishops. You know, uh, it would make sense. Uh, a bishop in Chicago is going to be uh, more influential than a bishop in, I suppose, Pleasant Springs, Wisconsin, <laughs> just based on demographics and the number of people, you know. Then the bishops of the major cities, Rome and Constantinople, become the most powerful bishops. And again, this is an oversimplification. There are a number of bishops in, in various cities, uh, Constantinople, uh, Alexandria, all, all these different places. But it's these two, Rome and Constantinople, that become sort of the most powerful and maybe even uh, vying for that position against one another. When both want to be supreme, uh, a split occurs in the church. Uh, and again, that might be a little bit of an oversimplification. There had been division brewing for some time between uh, East and West. So we usually we, we point to 1054 AD as the date where the church divides into the Roman Catholic Church or the Western churches and the Greek Orthodox Church or the Eastern Church. And that's a divide that continues to this day. Uh, again, if you were to ask them, they might say that some of those divisions actually go back earlier, and it's not just a matter of supremacy of the bishops. Uh, the East would say a lot of it, uh, some of it involves the filioque way, this phrase that they would say was inserted into the creed that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and the Son being the filioque clause. So uh, they'd say that, you know, the West had no right to insert that into a universal creedal statement. And anyways, uh, again, that's very much an oversimplification, so I don't want to do it an injustice. But needless to say, like all history, if you take a closer look, you realize that there's a lot more to it. Anyways, this, this, the Bishop of Rome calls himself Pope, meaning Father and declares himself the successor of Peter, the representative of Christ and the visible head of the church. Now, 
Uh, by the way, the term father in and of itself, you know, some people find it incredibly offensive. You know, no one should call anyone father but God alone. On the other hand, Paul himself would talk about, uh, you know, that I begot you through the gospel. You have one father in Christ. And so, uh, you know, we don't make a lot about that title. Uh, in the Lutheran Church, we don't generally call our pastors father, although there are maybe congregations that do, not particularly in our circles. But there's, I wouldn't say there's anything necessarily wrong with it per se. The papacy begins to take more and more power to itself to the point of saying that the Pope is not subject to any ruler and even claims the authority to appoint and remove emperors. And it's kind of interesting uh, to this day, Vatican City is basically a sovereign nation unto itself. And uh, I mean, so a lot of what I'm saying, you, you can see for yourself if you look at uh, the power that the Pope currently wields in this world. Now, with the rise of the papacy, the light of the gospel, um, I would say, begins to become more and more obscured. And it's not just because of the papacy. There's a whole variety of issues that have been brewing for some time. But uh, with the the rise of more and more false teachings, different different factors, the gospel begins to become more and more obscured. It's not that it's not there at all, but it becomes much less explicit in the teachings of the church until finally, in some ways, it's almost like it's forgotten. Uh, nevertheless, I mean, you can see it in the, in the art and in, you know, the music and liturgy and the stained glass, a, a lot of the things that were still being used in the churches. But for the common person who's sitting there on a service, it may not be so obvious to them anymore. So you could say that a deep darkness begins to settle upon the church. It doesn't happen overnight. And uh, over the years, tradition, the decrees of church councils, even the pronouncements of the Pope begin to take uh, a much more prominent place and a much higher uh, sense of authority than even the scriptures themselves. And the people are directed to rely for their salvation not only on the grace of God and Christ, but also on their works. And again, uh, this is nothing new. I mean, if you read St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, this is exactly what he's dealing with there with the Judaizers. So there's nothing new under the sun. It's not that this has never happened before. Uh, it's not that it wasn't addressed in the scriptures, and yet people are blinded by it. They fall for it. Jesus is pictured to them not as a loving savior, but as a stern judge who must be approached through other mediators, whether that be the Virgin Mary or the saints. You know, uh, you can't go directly to God because he's too busy. You know, you, you might want to try going through some of his other people, the saints. You know, that's kind of the, the idea. And again, that's, you know, to be fair, that's a way oversimplification. And I'm, you know, I'm sure that many a Roman Catholic person would probably take offense just the way that I stated that. And I don't certainly mean to oversimplify it. But the Lord of the church has said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And there were a number of movements to bring reformation to the church. Men like John Huss 
and Savranola pointed out some of the abuses. Uh, so, you know, as we're getting closer to the time of the Reformation, you know, uh, in the 1500s here, uh, I think it's important that we recognize Luther was certainly not the first one to bring up a lot of these abuses that were going on in the church. People like Huss and Savernola and others uh, raised some of these concerns, and they were killed. They were killed by representatives of the church. However, God continued to raise up men calling for reform in the church. And again, the idea of reformation uh, is, not a, is not a new or novel thing. You can see reformations of the church in the scriptures themselves. Go back to the Old Testament. We see this cycle of apostasy falling away. Uh, a, a, a cry of repentance from God's people, God raising up judges or prophets or whoever it might be to call the people back to the truth. And this happens over and over and over in church history. So when we talk about the Reformation, it's not like this is some you know new phenomena. However, there were so many factors that kind of came to a head at the same time, uh, at the time of what we would call the conservative reformation with Martin Luther, which occurs, you know, in the 1500s. So as we're getting to that now, Martin Luther himself was born in Eisleben, Germany on November 10th, 1483. Now that's nine years before the discovery of America, according to our textbooks, you know, Columbus, uh, just to give you a frame of reference. He went to school to become a lawyer uh, but walking home during a terrible storm, uh, he feared for his life, and he vowed to become a monk if God would keep him alive. So the story goes. But as a monk, uh, Luther didn't find the solace or the peace that he longed for. He was a devout man, a very pious man, a very zealous man for the church and for the teachings of the church. Uh, he set out... Uh, sought to be the best monk he could. He prayed, he worked, he fasted to the point where he was even wasting away and he was little more than skin and bones. And yet he never felt that peace with God that he thought he would have by becoming a monk through the monastery. And said so he would even groan, oh, when will you be pious and do enough that God will be merciful to you? He was trying to find peace with God through his own efforts and striving. And uh, one day, of course, he got a chance to read the scriptures for himself, and he read them eagerly. An older monk had advised him to trust in Christ for his salvation, so this idea didn't come from Luther, and it certainly is there. I mean, it comes from the scriptures, so <laughs> it's not like it was an invention. But that, that advice shed a small ray of light into Luther's soul. And as a priest, and later as a professor in a university, uh, he made an intensive study of the scriptures. And while preparing to lecture on the book of Romans, he saw that truth which finally gave him that peace and that comfort that he had been looking for. It's something that had been right there before his eyes. He really struggled with this phrase, the righteousness of God. And especially as the church had taught it, you know, the standard of God's righteousness was something that he was always trying to strive to keep. And as he looked and studied St. Paul's letter to the Romans, he saw that there St. Paul spoke of a righteousness which comes from God, apart from works of the law, but which comes through faith. 
He saw that man is justified by faith without deeds of the law, St. Paul wrote. And so Luther would write, you know, it's like the whole scripture was open to me and heaven itself. He says, immediately I felt as if born anew, if I had found the open gates of paradise. Of course, he had just he had just read the gospel. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, Luther didn't invent this. It wasn't, he didn't discover this as if it had been, you know, nobody else had taught it. Uh, the gospel was there in the scriptures all along. It's just that he had been taught to, to look for his peace with God in a different way. And so when he first comes to terms with the gospel, he, he realized that, that comfort that he longed for, as you know, it's, it sounds silly, I suppose, to, to those of us who have grown up in a church where we get to hear the gospel every Sunday. But I think for anybody whose conscience is plagued by the guilt of their sin or who's tried to struggle to be good enough for God, so to speak, the fact that the gospel says Christ has done it all and he gives it all to you freely, without condition, only somebody who's struggled and labored under that kind of heavy load can understand the peace and the consolation that the gospel truly gives. So while teaching the newly found truth at the University of Wittenberg, Luther became greatly disturbed over the way that the people acted after they had bought indulgences or letters of pardon. There was a traveling monk by the name of John Tetzel uh, and he had been sent by the Pope to raise money for the building of St. Peter's Church in Rome. And uh, one of the ways that they could raise money is by selling what they called indulgences. And these indulgences, I guess maybe I would just call it a get-out-of-jail-free card. You could apply it to your dead relatives. You could help Grandma spring from time in purgatory, which I think I've mentioned in previous episodes, which is not a teaching of the Bible, by the way. But... If you really love grandma and you wanted to do something for her, you know, I think I'll buy one of those indulgences. Or if, you know, you know, you can get prepaid cards for your cell phone or whatever. If you wanted to have a prepaid card for your sinful lifestyle, you could say, I plan on going out this weekend and having a good time. So I think I'm going to go ahead and buy a couple of these indulgences so that I don't need to worry about it later. I can just kind of go out and have a good time and send myself silly. Uh, you can see how it really became a dangerous, dangerous thing. And people were putting their trust and their hope in it because this had come from the Pope himself, right? So it led people to believe that they could purchase the forgiveness of sins and that they didn't need to repent. So on October 31st, 1517, this is on the eve of All Saints Day, All Hallows' Eve, uh, the big big church festival is going to occur the next day. Luther goes and he places, he, he nails 95 theses, statements against the sale of indulgences to the door of the Wittenberg church. Now, you can go on, you can read those for yourself. Uh, Luther doesn't have everything completely straight in his mind at this point. So he's still in the process of sort of, it, it, it's becoming clearer to him, but he, you know, he, he doesn't have everything completely, all of his ducks in a row. But in taking this step, he had no idea of starting a reformation. I mean, he was looking to spark a debate, continue a conversation. In some ways, he really felt like he was doing the Pope a favor, like he was a loyal subject to the Pope. He thought, well, if the Pope understood all these things that are going on, certainly he'll agree with me and, and he'll, he'll address these things and, and do away with them. 
See, he considered himself a faithful son of the church, and he thought he was doing the Pope a favor by standing for the truth of the Bible. But, as it said, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. Now, there was, again, a variety of issues that make this particularly effort at Reformation successful where others had failed. And some of those uh, circumstances had nothing to do with Luther himself, but by the providence of God. There were other factors, uh, whether it's political situations that were going on. But one of the, the, the main things was the invention of the printing press. Uh, it had, had occurred just shortly before this time. And so at this time, Luther's theses were able to be printed and distributed and read and even discussed all over Europe. Now, that would have been much more difficult had this happened 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier, whatever. This simply would have not been possible. But again, uh, by the providence of God, there were many different factors that came into play at this particular time. And as people read these things, many were excited by them, but the Pope became uneasy. And he wanted to sort of silence Luther with, first with promises, you know, I'll make you uh, into a great cardinal or whatever it might be. And, and then later with threats when he realized that wasn't going to work. So by 1521, Luther is ordered to appear at a meeting. It's called the Diet at Worms. Or if you read it in English, it says the Diet of Worms, and it has nothing to do with what they ate. But it's, it's what they called a meeting, a diet. His friends, fearing for his life, advise him not to go. But Luther says, God is with me, and I will go, even if there are as many devils at Worms as there are shingles on the roofs of the houses. And so he goes, and standing before the emperor, the leaders of the state and the church, uh, everybody's interested in this because nobody wants dissension or conflict in their land. So it's not just the church, but now you've got even the state involved. You know, they're all cutting, putting, putting pressure on Luther. Luther, maybe you should just take this all back and, and this can all just go away. Uh, so... Standing before the emperor, the leaders of the state and the church, Luther is given no opportunity to show that his teachings are those of the Bible and the early Christian church, but he's simply told to recant, to take it back. All that he's said and all that he's written. And Luther struggles. Uh, you know, am I, am I causing problems? Am, am, am I, what am, what am I doing here? But at the end, he refuses to take back anything that he said unless he can be shown from the Bible that it's wrong. So, uh, in many ways, this is kind of the epitome of what it means to be a Lutheran. You know, we draw all of our teachings from Scripture. And unless we can be shown from Scripture that it's wrong, we, can, we, can, we cannot help but confess the truth that God has revealed. However, as a result of this confession, Luther is declared an outlaw. And he's a wanted man. However, powerful friends kind of come and kidnap him. And they hide him in a castle called the Wartburg. And uh, Luther is kind of by himself. It's kind of a lonely time for Luther. He's got a lot of time to himself. Uh, you know, you can only imagine the inner demons that he struggles with. But he's got this time. He's got time on his hands uh, for study. And, and it's during this time that he begins his monumental translation of the Bible into German. Now, uh, this is, again, one of the most monumental works of the Reformation is the translation of the scriptures, the Bible, into the language of the people. 
Remember, before this time, the, the services were done in Latin. If you didn't speak Latin, you, you really didn't understand much of what was being said. The Bible was, was the, the Latin translation was used. And, uh, you know, for the average person, uh, most of it was not understood. You might understand a little bit of Latin, but a lot of it you had no idea. So uh, you, we can't even begin to fathom how important this one event was from the Reformation. But eventually, Luther does come out of hiding in the Wartburg, and he returns to Wittenberg, and there he continues to teach and preach. So in 1529, Luther publishes his small catechism. Uh, and a catechism, by the way, is just a, it's an instruction book. It's kind of written in a format where there's questions and then there's answers, usually with uh, biblical references as to where you get these answers from. But it's, it's written in a simple way that children or parents can teach their children in the home. So the small catechism especially was written for that, that idea, for the instruction of children and the common people. And it was, a, it was a booklet, it's not very long, which is rightly called the Gem of the Reformation. Uh, there's also the large catechism, which uh, a lot of Lutherans are familiar with the small catechism from confirmation classes. But if you've never had an opportunity to read the large catechism, and it has nothing to do with the size of it, um, you know, I guess length, maybe, I suppose you could say it's maybe a little longer, but uh, do yourself a favor, read the large catechism, simply wonderful. Luther has this, uh, you know, God-given ability to articulate the deepest and most profound biblical truths, and yet in just the simplest, straightforward way. It's not hard to understand. In very simple statements, and yet when you kind of plumb the depths of them, you kind of go, wow. Uh, not a wasted word, just said so eloquently, so precise. He also composes many hymns. That's something maybe people don't realize is that Luther was a, a, a prolific hymn writer. And among, of course, his most famous hymn being the great battle hymn of the Reformation, if you will, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, based roughly on, you know, Psalm 46. Then he issues a hymn book, and soon the restored gospel is everywhere, singing itself into the hearts of the people. And the Lutheran church becomes known as the singing church, a reputation which it enjoys to this day. Again, this is, this is very simplistic. There's, there's much more to, to that. I mean, Luther takes the liturgy as it was being used, the, the rite of the service that was being used in the church, he doesn't uh, throw it out, but he does reform or uh, he eliminates the anti, the stuff that was unscriptural, but he keeps all the stuff that was scriptural and he puts it into the vernacular of the people. So now people are able to sit into a church service and understand they're hearing what's going on. They're singing, they're participating where they weren't participating before. And in many ways, the gospel, as I said, is singing it its way into the hearts of the people. The Lutheran church becomes known as the singing church. And I guess if you've grown up in it, you kind of take that for granted. But in a lot of other traditions, it's just not as prominent. When you look at the hymnody that comes out of the Lutheran church, especially the, you know, at the time of the Reformation, it's very rich doctrinal. We sing the truths of scripture. It's not the toe-tapping, feel-good, shallow uh, you know, I love you, Jesus type music that's so popular in praise circles today. Um, here we're singing the doctrines of God. So, 
And if you know anything about memorizing, you put something to music and it's forever burned into your memory, right? I mean, isn't it crazy that we can remember lyrics to songs we heard when we were, you know, four or five years old? But this is brilliant. I mean, if you want the truths of the scriptures to really reach the hearts and minds of the people, put it to music. And the again, the hymnody from that period is just fantastic. So rich, so deep, so moving. Uh, some of the greatest musicians uh, in the world actually come out of the Lutheran church and the Lutheran tradition. We think about Bach. Uh, again, you can you can just read these hymns just the, the wording, the words, the lyrics alone become prayers. They become meditations that you can read. They're just singing uh, the gospel into the hearts of the people. Anyways, meanwhile, both the state and the Roman Catholic Church worked to suppress the preaching of the gospel. So in 1530, there's another meeting uh, called a diet. This, one, this time it's at Augsburg. And the, Luther's, the Lutheran leaders present a document which outlined their evangelical, that literally means, you know, to gospel proclaiming, true to the gospel, their beliefs. And it's called the Augsburg Confession. Now, 50 years later, the Augsburg Confession, its defense, uh, Luther's writings, they're going to be put into what's called the Book of Concord which contains all of the confessional writings of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and that's published and signed by 51 princes, 35 cities, and 9,000 theologians. It includes documents that outline and profess what Lutherans believe. That would include the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, as I said, the Augsburg Confession, and the Apology or the Defense of the Augsburg Confession, something called the Small Keld Articles, Luther's two catechisms, the small and large catechism, uh, Luther's treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope, and the formula of Concord. And uh, there were other prominent leaders of the Lutheran Church that contribute to these writings. It's not, these are not Luther's writings. Luther was influential in many of these writings, and a few of them are Luther's writings. But uh, when we look at the, the history of the Lutheran Church, I think it's important that we acknowledge we are not followers of Luther per se. Luther wrote a lot of things that we might disagree with. The things that are in the Book of Concord we confess as being true, uh, not because Luther wrote them, but because they are in line with what the scriptures teach. But uh, in many ways, after Luther's death, immediately there are false teachings that try to crowd out the gospel and work their way into even the Lutheran church. And so it's the next generation of Lutheran confessors, uh, people like Andrea or Martin Chemnitz, who really are the ones who are responsible for retaining and keeping Lutheranism on the straight and narrow. And even after them, men like Johann Gerhard, so it's not as though Luther himself single-handedly carries the church and that somehow the Lutheran church uh, are simply disciples of Luther in some way. It's just not true. Uh, in fact, without these other men, the Lutheran church would have fallen very early. Lutheranism then spreads rather quickly, uh, finding a welcome in Denmark and Norway, Iceland, Sweden, uh, Finland, go Finland, uh, I say that because I'm Finnish, 100%. Lapland and the Baltic provinces. 
and exercising an influence upon the people of Scotland and England. So it, the, the teachings of the Reformation spread very quickly. And why? Because people were hungry for the gospel. They had access to it because, I said, of the printing press and so on. The distribution of these materials uh, was able to be done now in a way that it had previously was not been able to have been done. But, of course, not all who followed Luther in the Reformation followed Luther's teachings. There were other reformers. So we, we've talked about the conservative Reformation. There's also something that we would call the radical Reformation. Uh, you know, there was, there was other reformers like Zwingli and Calvin who've come after Luther. Uh, there was a, a sect called the Anabaptists that arose, which rejected infant baptism, and they rebaptized people, hence the name. Uh, they said that baptism is not valid unless it's administered by full immersion, and then only people who can give account of their faith, so a believer's baptism. Uh, and again, th these are relatively uh, new teachings. When we, when we look at the history of the church, you might find people occasionally who had some sort of, uh, you know, elements of these teachings, but this is radical. This is, this is completely out of step with church history. Not that that proves necessarily anything, but understand that if you're a follower of one of these traditions, in, in many ways, you have to say, well, the church had it wrong for 1,500 years, and then my guy, my guy came along, and suddenly it's all been right since then. Understand, we don't say that with Luther. We don't say Luther, you know, the church was all wrong, and then Luther came along, and now it's all right. Not at all. In fact, Luther didn't in, invent any teaching. There's no... Uh, particularly Lutheran teaching per se, although, I mean, there's some, I suppose, that we could say are, are somewhat unique, but Luther didn't invent anything. I mean, there's nothing that the Lutheran church teaches that you can't find in, first of all, the apostles and the scriptures, but even within the history of the church. So, you know, get that idea of your, out of your mind. On the flip side, f from those who are, find their heritage in the radical reformation, a lot of times, some of these teachings that they are holding to to this day, uh, that it has a very, very short history. Not that that in and of itself proves anything, but I think it's important that people wrestle with that idea. You have to really essentially say, everybody was wrong until my guy came along. Uh, that's a dangerous place to be. So two Swiss reformers in particular, as, as I mentioned, Zwingli and Calvin, they disturbed the church with false teachings, especially in regard to the Lord's Supper. And I, and I mentioned this as we talked about the sacraments. Are they simply symbolic? Are they simply something that we do for God? Or are these something that God works through for our benefit? So there's this meeting that happens between Luther and Zwingli in 1529, and uh, they're going to debate about the Lord's Supper. And Zwingli insists that Christ's body and blood cannot be present in the sacrament, and that the words of Christ, this is my body, must be read or interpreted to mean this represents my body. So <laughs> Luther would point to the, the word, is means is. Look it, Jesus says, this is. This, this is my body. This is my blood. And uh, Zwingli would say, yeah, well, that's what it says, but really what he means to say, what he meant to say the way you should understand it is that this represents, this symbolizes my body. That's a dangerous place to be. Anytime you're putting words into the mouth of Jesus, if Jesus wanted to say this represents or this symbolizes, he could have said that. He doesn't say it. But now you've got these people that are correcting Jesus. You know, Here's what he really meant to say. That's a dangerous place to be.
Now, over against that idea, Luther maintains what the Bible says about the real presence, declaring that when Jesus said, this is my body, he meant what he said, and that no one has the right to twist God's word. So Zwingli goes on and he continues in his error and uh, together with Calvin, he becomes the father of the many and various reformed churches of our time. Uh, So we would say Lutherans are Protestants, uh, but not all Protestants are Lutheran. So we talk about the reformed churches, the non-Lutheran Protestants. Uh, and in the, the Reformed churches of our time, um, we'll talk about it in a second, but uh, there's another man, John Knox of Scotland, who perpetuates the false teachings of Calvin in what would become the Presbyterian church. Cranmer of England brings about the formation of the Church of England or uh, the Episcopal Church. Later, John Wesley, also uh, of England, becomes sort of the organizer of what becomes known as the Methodist churches. So, uh, you know, those become sort of the big branches of Christianity. And then, of course, from there, you get many, many micro branches that split off from those. Of course, we didn't talk about the death of Luther. Luther died on February 15th, 1546, confessing his Savior unto the end. Uh, It said that his last written words were, we are beggars, this is true. In other words, uh, we are saved completely by God's grace alone. There's nothing we can plead from God other than his mercy. Now, the Romanists at the Council of Trent, this this is a council that the Church of Rome calls, and it, it, it goes on for some time, 1546 to 1563, and they make all sorts of pronouncements, especially in reaction to the Lutheran movement. And they pronounce a curse upon the teachings of Luther and the Lutherans, Uh, However, God continues to bless the preaching of his truth. Uh, There are other things that happen in the secular world, different wars and plagues that go on that shape a lot of the history. The Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 48 threatens the very existence of Lutheranism. Uh, But the Lord of the Church sends the great Swedish and Lutheran king, Gustavus Adolphus, the Lion of the North, to the rescue. And in the midst of the deepest sorrows, the Lutheran Church learns to sing some of her greatest hymns composed by Paul Gerhardt. If you want to read uh, what good hymnody looks like, and I know that's a subjective term. It sounds such a like such a pompous thing to say, I suppose. You're biased. Yeah. But honestly, I mean, uh, we're talking meat and potatoes, you know, bread and butter, so to speak. Stuff that's got substance and not just fluff. So we're not looking for the whipping cream. We're looking for the stuff that's going to fill you up. Go read some of the the lyrics of Paul Gerhardt hymns. That's G-E-R-H-A-R-D-T. Now, later, Johann Sebastian Bach, the master musician of all times, gives the church her richest choral treasures. Other people like George Handel, uh, another Lutheran, inspires her and others with his matchless Messiah and Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, about this time, the Lutheran Church begins to do mission work in India, and a man named Hans Egede, also a Lutheran, becomes the first to carry the gospel to even as far as Greenland. Now, beginning in the early 1600s, many groups of Lutherans start to come to America. Uh, the Dutch, the Swedes, the Germans, the Norwegians, uh, 
the Finns. It doesn't say that, but I would just add them there. <laughs> others settle here, seeking religious freedom or other blessings which this country has to offer. And the first Lutheran service on American soil is conducted on the Hudson Bay by Reverend Rasmus Jensen in 1619. The first Lutheran church is erected in Wilmington, Delaware in 1638. The first book to be translated into an American Indian language is, in fact, Luther's small catechism, done by Campanius in 1646. So it's slow at first. This immigration of Lutherans gradually increases until after 1800, literally thousands are coming each year to make their homes in many states of our nation. Self-sacrificing pastors and missionaries gather the scattered Lutherans and others who are brought to faith into congregations. Congregations unite into synods, which literally means a walking together, and sometimes into federations of synods. I, I will say that a lot of these Lutheran immigrants to America, especially in the 1800s, came to escape uh, what were called the Union churches, especially like in places like Germany, where uh, you had political figures who were, for the sake of peace or other factors, were trying to force the Lutherans into unions with the Reformed churches. They would try to combine them in one church. And of course, wh I mentioned this before, when you try to combine uh, two different teachings that are not the same or that are even opposites, Inevitably, something gets compromised, and uh, inevitably, the truth itself is always compromised. So our Lutheran fathers, many of who immigrated to America because they could have this freedom to confess the truth, uh, these were some of the reasons that they left, is because they would not be forced into these unions where the, the truth itself would be compromised. And so a lot of these Lutherans that come to America really understood what the church was about, what it meant to confess the truth. Uh, we think about men like C.F.W. Walther, who was the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, who becomes uh, very, very pivotal in establishing confessional Lutheranism in America, forgetting some of the other Germans and even Norwegians on the right track in regard to various teachings. So, uh, I mean, there's a whole history just to American Lutheranism, which would be worthwhile to take a look at. We're not going to get into that today. So my, I simply point that out because, it, it, you know, there's, there's much more that should be said and could be said. And that's even important history for us to understand, which we're not going to have time to get into today. But perhaps these are some of the issues that we can also talk about in a future episode. I will just say that the, this, you know, the Lutheran Church is not a new church. And uh, if you don't believe that, um, th then why, why, would, why would you be part of it, right? Uh, I've often challenged my members in my congregations, and, and I'll say this, and it's, it always sounds really radical when I say it. People say, what are you talking about? I would say, if, if St. Paul were to be alive today, and he were to live in your town, what church would he be a member of? Well, that's that's a ridiculous, you know. Of course, he wouldn't be a member of any church because you know there's no, denominationalism or whatever. You know, that's all. Okay, okay, okay. Knowing what Saint Paul teaches and what he confesses, there is such thing as truth. There is such thing as falsehood. Do you believe that there is a church in your community that actually teaches everything Saint Paul taught 
and actually rejects everything St. Paul rejected. Uh, crickets. The, the point is this. If you are not convinced that St. Paul himself would be a member of your congregation, that he would confess exactly the same thing that your church teaches and believes and confesses, then why are you there? Why are you a member there? Is close enough what God says in the scriptures about truth? Is, I just feel like this is the place where God wants me to be? Is, is that ever the criteria for finding a church home? I, I just feel like this is the place that God wants me to No. Does it teach the truth? Does it teach the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Does it reject what is false? Would you say that St. Paul would be a member of your congregation? If you can't say that, why are you a member there? And things today are not radically different than they were 2,000 years ago. No, there's nothing new under the sun. So that's just something that I guess I would challenge you to think about, the listener. And, and I'm not trying to, um, you know, ta- ta- taunt you or something like that. But I think it's something that we all have to wrestle with, right? I mean, uh, if, if I'm not convinced that St. Peter and St. Paul and all of these early first century Christians— if I'm not convinced that they would be a member of the particular church that I'm a member of, why am I there? And that goes for any of us, no matter what our background is. You know, why are we there? So I would say that the Lutheran church is not a new church. Uh, It hasn't invented anything. There's no particular Lutheran uh, teaching per se. Again, I say that because there are some, maybe some teachings that uh, are articulated, you know, by Lutherans, but they're not unique to the Lutheran church. I mean, they're there in the scriptures themselves. So uh, I would say that the Lutheran Church is a continuation of the old church that was established at the time of the apostles that finds its history throughout the centuries. Uh, we, we can point to the church fathers and we can read them and uh, we can say, okay, well, the church fathers were not infallible. They didn't get everything right all the time. Nevertheless, uh, you know, you can read people like Augustine or St. John Chrysostom or whoever it might be, and you will see the gospel articulated by them. Luther wasn't the first one to understand the gospel or to articulate it. They understood these things. And you could do the same thing for all the teachings. Uh, You know, that's not to say that the church didn't uh, adopt false teachings or false practices over time. I mean, certainly that that does. But my my point is is that uh, doctrine itself is is not progressive in the sense of it change. It doesn't change. Sometimes the church is called to uh, articulate or defend the truth against falsehood, but the doctrine itself is there in the New Testament. That's the only source and norm for all of our teaching and for what we believe teaching confess. So we would, we would translate our, we would trace our history back to the day of Pentecost itself, the day of the birth of the New Testament church. Luther didn't invent, invent a new religion. He certainly never wanted to do that, uh, but he certainly did want to restore to his purity, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or I would say rather, even maybe at times unwillingly, God used Luther to do this, to restore the gospel to its purity. But it's not a new gospel. It's not a new teaching, simply the teaching that was there all along. Now, I would say to be a Lutheran doctrine, a doctrine must be a biblical doctrine, and every biblical doctrine is a Lutheran doctrine. And in this regard, uh, Lutherans... uh, you know, they're not afraid to use things that come from the past in the church, as long as they're in line with the scriptures, whether that be artwork or music or hymnody or whatever. We'd say if it confesses the truth, that's ours. We claim it. That's ours. 
you know, so we don't throw out the past. We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We would say, if it confesses truth, it's in line with the gospel, that's ours. So we're not innovators in that sense. Now, there's a lot more that I want to, I want to say in that regard. So in, uh, this, is, this brings our, our uh, what does the Bible say sort of series to a conclusion. But in the future episodes, uh, we are going to talk about Lutheran worship, because I think there is a distinction that sometimes even Lutherans are confused about. What is Lutheran worship? What makes it unique? And what, what is it that we should be holding on to, especially in, a, in a, a, a culture or a context of our day and age where even Lutherans are throwing things out and they think that they're improving upon things and uh, maybe they're making things worse. But again, that might sound like a subjective statement. We'll talk about those things in future episodes. So I just want to thank you. If you've been with us for the last 24 episodes, hopefully you found them beneficial. Maybe those episodes have challenged you or raised questions in your mind. You know, feel free to, to uh, ask us questions, email us questions or whatever. Uh, I don't claim to, to be the authority on every particular uh, topic, nor do I claim to know everything. Uh, so, um, you know, this is our sort of humble contribution to hopefully an ongoing discussion where we can talk about these things because these things are worth talking about. The truth is worth talking about and uh, discussing, having conversations, even challenging each other with one, at times, but in a way that's loving and beneficial to all as we go back to the scriptures, as we search the scriptures and we, we look for the truth that God has revealed to us. So again, I want to say thank you. And on behalf of Under the Oaks, this is Pastor Trent. Sorry. And I'm Lauren Thompson. We hope you'll join us next time.